Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. It's Wednesday, April 26, 2023, and today we're going to be answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the past few days. And as we do each week, we'll get to those answers in a few minutes, but as we do each week, we uh, take our stories, uh, our themes that we cover here in question format, uh, we take those three themes from our newsletter that comes out on Mondays, and that's called All the SMIE News Fit to Share. And if you're wondering what SMIE is, that's Social Media and International Education. That's the name of the consulting company that I created nine years ago. It's also uh, the uh, title for our roundup and our uh, newsletter. So on the newsletter version, that comes out Monday mornings on, at 9 a.m. Eastern. Uh, if you subscribe via our website, and I'll be putting the links to our website where you can sign up for the newsletter, uh, the most recent edition of that e-newsletter, and then also uh, the version of that that you can find on LinkedIn. If you, if you choose to get your international ed news via LinkedIn, uh, certainly can subscribe to that. Between those two uh, formats, we've got well over 1,000 coming on, on 1,100 subscribers in international education that get this news every Monday in their inboxes. So uh, we take those news stories that are social media and international ed related. We look at where the themes that might be developing around are common news stories around a couple different elements, three different stories each week. And we uh, put those together in, uh, in this roundup format and cover that a little bit more in depth. So let's get right into it. Thanks again for those of you who are watching live on Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Twitter channels for SMIE. Uh, we uh, endeavor each week to provide you the kind of content here that's uh, beyond just those initial hot takes about what these news stories mean, but see where those themes are that might have uh, implications for what we do in international education and give our, our thoughts on where we all can benefit. Now, first question of the day is, how vital is India to U.S. international educators? And anybody who's been in the business for more than a minute has known that the Indian market has largely been a graduate-focused market over the last 20, 30 years. And at one point before mid-naughties, uh, India was the largest sender of students to, uh, to the U.S. And they were replaced by China in about 2005, 2006. And since then, up until this past uh, Open Doors report for November 2022, we realized that... Uh, uh, China was losing ground, uh, and but they had been number one, uh, and had as of last even last November. But uh, recent data that will come out uh, through SEVP and their Sevis by the Numbers and other reports, uh, certainly that we get and um, we'll get by the fall of new international students coming and that type of thing, we'll see India far surpass uh, China in terms of not only new international students coming to the U.S., but total international students currently studying in the U.S. Uh, will India will surpass China as the number, new number one uh, or regain their title, so to speak, after almost 20 years. But India, and just in sheer volume, will always be, uh, uh, along with China, the biggest two markets uh, for international education. Uh, the, another reason India is becoming more and more prominent, we see increased focus on uh, the, just the, the demographics within India versus China. India is growing and about to, about to, if they haven't already, surpassed China as the largest country in the world population-wise, not just sending student-wise. Uh, you've seen their middle class begin to really take off. You've seen uh, Indian students having a greater option in terms of where they can go for their higher education. And there are those kind of 
push factors out from India because of the limited number of spaces at quality institutions that Indian students have available to them in an insanely competitive uh, entry requirement or entry testing requirement to Indian top universities. Uh, so it is very much an outbound student market uh, for uh, Indians who want to get their higher education abroad, some or all of it. So, uh, some choose to do their local, uh, their bachelor's program in country and in the past and up and still today, those that's where the majority of Indian students that are coming to the United States are coming for graduate studies, having already done bachelor's degree probably in country and are now looking for the graduate program abroad. And that will continue to be for, uh, just because the volume of that market uh, continue to be uh, the largest single source of Indian students coming will be graduate for the foreseeable future, and increasingly so, uh, because of the rise of many uh, STEM, STEM masters and doctoral programs that have developed in the past few years beyond the traditional engineering, mathematics, science programs. You've seen a lot more business programs uh, be written to be a more STEM focused and allow them to get that extra work permission. And that you can't undervalue how important uh, job prospects are, post uh, length of post study work and a job market in your country for uh, prospective students as they look at it. And we'll cover some of that a little bit further on in our conversation today. And actually, our, all three stories will have that element of importance of work, uh, work permission in your country, in the United States. For STEM students, obviously you see that is such an important tool and has been for many years to attract students from uh, India to the United States. They represent the largest, uh, uh, by far the greater majority of OPT students in the US, United States are Indian. Also for H-1Bs, the next level after uh, students who want to continue working would progress to as uh, international students in the United States. So as we do uh, with this topic, we want to present some important examples of how uh, India is, how vital it is to the, to the U.S. international education community. Uh, one of my colleagues, a former Education USA advisor uh, from Mumbai, has now been working at the U.S. consulate in Mumbai for a number of years, Belrus Vari. Uh, she has sent me information about a grant out of uh, the uh, uh, the U.S. Embassy in or U.S. Consulate in Mumbai. It's actually from the in, for the U.S. Mission in India. Uh, they're seeking uh, up to a quarter million dollar grant uh, for uh, individuals or groups to create a digital guide on internationalization with the theme of simplifying U.S.-India higher education institution collaboration and partnerships, which will assist ind individuals interested in creating linkages between higher ed institutions in the U.S. and India. So this is a, a quite substantial uh, grant, quarter million dollars, that uh, the U.S. mission in India is, is looking for folks in the United States and India to develop a guide, a digital guide to higher ed relationships between Indian and U.S. Uh, institutions. So clearly uh, investment by the, by the uh, US, U.S. mission in India to develop this resource for many U.S. institutions that are going to be looking to do the, develop closer ties with Indian universities in the years to come. You've seen this on top of uh, American Association of uh, Universities uh, put together a proposal to become uh, 
take kind of take the lead on developing partnerships between the U.S. and and India on the higher ed side. So you see a, a focus by the government. You see a focus by the U.S. Uh, associate higher ed association world to come together and help to provide resources uh, to that to help facilitate future ties between U.S. and Indian institutions. That's an, one piece of this puzzle. So just the sheer volume of why India will be, continue to be vital is because of the numbers uh, that we're seeing increasing interest in our programs because the work permission as we talked about earlier uh, and you also see uh, the resources being uh, put into uh, the consulates uh, and the capacity of uh, U.S. consulates and embassy in India to reach more and more Indian students. Uh, you see uh, the, pl the plan to invite a record number of U.S. of Indian students to the United States this fall, that their part of that plan is increasing visa interview appointments by 30 percent. Uh, last year, there were over 125,000 Indian students that came into the uh, into the United States that were new, uh, re receiving new visas uh, to uh, to attend U.S. institutions. They look they want to go 30 percent more interview slots this summer to help increase uh, that number from 125,000 last year to probably closer to 150, 160, 170,000 actual students entering new in the fall. So that that's a huge uh, huge investment again of time and resources. Uh, we've had the recent re reopening or the opening of a new uh, U.S. consulate in Hyderabad that uh, will will help get those visa appointments because uh, Hyderabad and Andhra Pradesh, Telangana, that area uh, has a, a large percentage of international students that come or Indian students that come to the U.S. come through uh, that U.S. consulate. And now they've got uh, a new consulate with 75 to 100 windows, a visa interview, interview windows, and so real capacity to help uh, meet that 30% jump in appointments. So that's encouraging to see. And you also see uh, just the, the numbers on uh, Indian students who are, are applying for or interested in going to the United States that are securing educational loans in country to, to attend universities in the U.S., how, how those numbers have jumped up uh, considerably in the last year, 1.7 times uh, their previous high. So you see some really positive signs to, to India in terms of a source, in terms of uh, U.S. government resources being committed to help on the higher ed uh, partnership side, and that's always encouraging to see governments wanting to do, uh, U.S. governments wanting to get involved and help facilitate those relationships. Uh, you also see uh, just the, the demographics in the markets uh, growing and growing and how uh, the U.S., because of its work permission ability, uh, promises uh, have continually attracted uh, Indian students in larger numbers over the last uh, last decade. So we'll see uh, just that, that continue to grow. There's even an article that we'll have in next week's newsletter that's saying India will be the shining light for international education uh, around the world uh, through at least 2050. So there's going to be a long uh, trajectory of growth for India to our market. So moving on to our second question of the day. How can your messaging play to your strengths? Now, this is something more, more uh, not just hypothetical in that yeah, your messaging should always reflect uh, your uh, relative value in the market, uh, what your value propositions are. But how can you play to your strengths 
when you there might not be a strength you normally associate with your institution internationally, or certainly not domestic. You might not associate your institution with this domestically, but internationally might have a very significant value. Uh, and when in certain markets we talk about uh, the price sensitivity of one market compared to the value proposition of another market compared to the work post-study work options of another market like India, as we were just talking about, uh, having different parts of your messaging that you might not have as a value for domestic markets might be incredibly important internationally. And this is where there are and have to be differences in how you speak to your prospective audiences that are next door, next state, uh, next city over, next, uh, but with other regions within the United States, comparing those value propositions to what your value propositions might and can, should be, uh, or elements of your value that should be highlighted more in international student conversations than perhaps you would domestically. You see these kind of struggles uh, popping up every once in a while and, and the, need, the obvious need for differentiation. I came into an institution uh, where I'd been consulting and when I first started, the international students did not get any messaging that was different from what domestic students got. They were the same messages and uh, they were incorrect messages um, to, that didn't reflect anything that made sense from an international student perspective and then actually caused some confusion uh, in reality with the, what those messages were trying to uh, say, perhaps, for example, about financial aid. When international students get the same messages as your domestic students, and without thinking, you send a student, international student something about the FAFSA form or need-based financial aid that you don't actually offer to international students. They're still getting that message. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, things later in the pipeline after post-admit and uh, those, there are messages there that don't make sense. If you don't require deposits for international students, then don't send them that letter. Uh, if you have different requirements, they have a different orientation start date, obviously those need to be accommodated, but other things that might normally get sent to a prospective domestic student shouldn't necessarily go to an international student. So there's a lot of differences that you need to be aware of, but the reason I this, this topic comes up this week is because of a new, um, a new, a new survey uh, that was as the surveys of survey results have been out for a couple of weeks, but uh, there's the were a flurry of stories in the past few days about uh, this particular survey and what it meant uh, for international educators. And the survey basically said uh, that for for certain markets, and it mentioned East Asian markets, that the issue of uh, or not not only East Asian markets, but those uh, where issues of housing availability and post-study work uh, promises or ability with those two two issues that represented uh, a reason why students would not go to particular markets uh, for uh, if they did not have uh, a, the guarantee of, affo of affordable housing. Uh, that we saw the picture in a story in the Pie News a couple of weeks ago of uh, an international student in Australia having to uh, use a tent uh, to pay $300 Australian dollars a week to have their tent with a, a couple coolers and some luggage around on the outside in somebody's living room. They were paying to live in a tent inside a living room. 
$300 Australian dollars a week. So housing is becoming increasingly an issue uh, in terms of affordability. We saw stories last fall of uh, British universities that were saying, don't come if you don't have housing. That's happening in a couple places in Canada where they weren't getting that message of don't come. But they, when they got there, there wasn't the housing available because there, there just isn't in, a, in the kind of community they were moving into. So there's some real challenges in terms of uh, what this uh, what this survey revealed, and this is the survey I'm talking about, is IDP's Emerging Futures Survey. Twenty one thousand students, hundred plus countries were surveyed, and the results were were fairly significant. But they talk about how in the cost of living, uh, and housing costs, and work study or work post war study work availability, those were co those were factors that would determine which way students would go in their studies, uh, which countries they go to. And this is a fact that I keep on drilling home to my U.S. colleagues is your students who are applying to you are, are looking not only at you and perhaps one other U.S. school, but they're looking at multiple countries uh, for as possible destinations and potentially one or two universities in each of those countries that might be on their list or that they're physically going to be applying to. So what, um, how are you keeping your message in alignment that appeals to students who have these various issues? And they have some uh, examples in markets where you might want to focus a little bit more on, hey, if you do have affordable housing and plentiful housing, that's something you want to highlight to your prospective student audiences at this point, because that is something that if they are looking at you and the UK or Australia where housing is a real challenge in certain cities and there just isn't any that is affordable for students, what are you going to do? If you can, if you have that as a strength card, as a kind of a, a, a ace in the hole, so to speak, that's something you want to have available and make known to your uh, to your prospective students, international students, because it is a significant issue that they're dealing with in multiple countries right now. So if this is an advantage, you might even might never thought of uh, having a plentiful housing on campuses being a highlight that you want to make sure international students know about. But this kind of a study shows you that that can and will make a difference if you if you they know it's an issue because you know, it's a know it's an advantage for you. Uh, so they don't know what they don't know. So if you haven't told them that yet, uh, it's a missed opportunity if you're not getting that messaging out to them. So have have some some messaging that's adaptable that you can plug and play kind of messaging throughout the flow uh, that you're putting out to students. Uh, and, and knowing what those issues are on a global scale helps inform what kind of messaging you should be putting out to students as they go through their days. So that's a just a quick uh, quick look at what I how, how important I think that piece is messaging is. Uh, that reflects uh, awareness of what those issues are in the global marketplace so that you can better uh, adapt what your strengths are in, ver in various times, uh, pre-pandemic versus post-pandemic. What students are impacted by has changed and is what they feel most important has changed. So have you adapted your messaging flow to meet that need? Uh, and play to strengths that you have. Uh, meet, obviously, questions and needs that they have in the market where you might not be the best in the flashiest responses, but you, at least you can say you're responsive. Uh, but also have the ability to to plug and play some different messaging that highlights different uh, different strengths of, of your institution and values that you have that you might not normally make available to domestic students, but they matter more to, a domestic, to an international audience. So have that available and that capacity in your messaging to ha get out uh, content to future students and parents that will uh, make put them at ease and let them know that uh, you have 
have uh, resources on campus to take care of their needs in, the, in their community to help them better adapt. So that always is a positive uh, when you can do that. Now, a last question of the day is I want to talk about something that uh, about these surveys, um, what they tell us about ourselves uh, as, as uh, international educators. Uh, and these surveys that we've, we've been seeing, I mentioned earlier, uh, the IDP survey, there's a, another, there's been a few articles about that. Uh, but uh, the Im importance of having um, that uh, what they're when they're what the, what factors are forcing them to reconsider um, the surveys and keeping keeping your fingers on the pulse and yes, all these flash surveys aren't all created equal <laughs> because they either have very small sample sizes or uh, have demographics that perhaps don't reflect the actual makeup of overall students coming uh, studying globally. Uh, like this IDP one had uh, their top two uh, sources. Nigeria was actually their largest source, then India, then China, Ghana, Philippines. So these are the markets that IDP is heavily, most heavily invested in. So they're reflective of, of the numbers, perhaps. Uh, kind of more in China than I thought they might have because they haven't been particularly strong there in the past, but seems to be gaining strength there. But their their top top ten include after those four Philippines, Pakistan, Kenya, Nepal, Bangladesh, Indonesia. So a good cross section of the globe. Uh, obviously nothing on the Western Hemisphere for that uh, in that mix, but certainly. Um, for where the over 70% of the world's population are coming from, from, from Asia, uh, you do see uh, the levels of what, what we have coming in as pretty, pretty significant. But what those, what it tells us, what does these surveys tell us about ourselves is how, and how we respond is uh, whether we have that kind of content we're talking about earlier that we're, we're, reflects what we're, uh, who we are as an institution that, and, and values that are most important to uh, overseas audiences. Uh, but the Emerging Futures uh, Report, number three, I guess, third version of this, uh, it has, when it looks at the top four destination markets for, for students th that are using uh, IDP, uh, Canada, Australia, USA, and UK, all were asked, well, how do you rank them first choice, second choice, third choice, fourth, fourth choice? And on Within, within as first choice, uh, the, all of the all of the countries are ranked between are between eighteen percent for the UK as a low, up to twenty seven percent for Canada as a high. So that's nine percent difference. So all fairly close together. So for international students that are looking at Western markets, they're hedging their bets. They're not all in on Canada. They're not all in on Australia. I mean, a lot of those countries will have uh, messaging that goes out that will reflect that in market, but uh, it's not. Uh, a runaway for any one, one country, which is good. Uh, it shows that that competition is out there, that uh, students are flexible in terms of they are considering multiple countries, uh, that no one has a majority, no one has more than 27% uh, in, in these top four. So it's pretty, pretty split. Uh, but if you look at top first or second choice, Canada is, is leading with 48%. U.S. is in second with 44%. Australia in third with 41%, UK at 36%. Uh, but if you look at third choice, uh, uh, it's, it's a little bit different in terms of volume uh, numbers, but 
uh, altogether, uh, Canada does lead overall uh, and does, um, and uh, Australia is in second, uh, USA in third, UK in fourth, New Zealand in a long distance fifth. So there's just the, where the numbers are, these surveys are showing kind of that students out there are considering multiple destination countries. And we've talked about that many times here on the roundup. But the, the reality of that situation means that we have to be hyper aware of what students in certain markets are most concerned about. And some of the emerging, uh, emerging trends report uh, talks about uh, what that looks like in terms of primary factors. Uh, it's, it had been in the past, uh, and this is where the, there are some differences between these surveys about what, what's most important, but uh, quality has always kind of been that number one, and this IDP survey reflects that overall. Then it says good employment opportunities after graduation. First time over 53% have said that is uh, one of the most important factors. Uh, third is have, uh, being a safe country for international students. So we know that can potentially mean uh, that uh, bit of a negative for the United States. Uh, support for international students comes in at number four. Part-time work opportunities at five. And, uh, and in sixth place, welcoming people from other countries as the primary factors. Those are the top six primary factors. So that quality issue is important. Uh, when we look at the role of post-study choice work, post-study work in student choice, and this is the availability of employment routes after graduation. And uh, when students were asked globally, the availability of a post-study work visa is the main or influencing factor in where they study, 63% said that will uh, be a um, main or influencing factor as a availability of post-study work. And that uh, and that's over 70% of students that are planning to study abroad saying, 72% are saying that they will apply for post-study work visa. So those are two important distinctions for those that are about to go. So uh, that almost 45% uh, basically almost half, would consider changing their destination if the duration of post-study work visa was shortened. So that is significant. And not just the availability of it, but if there's threats to reduce the amount of time that the students are going to have on post-study work, that can be an even more significant uh, differentiator in terms of what's going to impact how these, where students will choose to go. So I think that speaks uh, a lot to how, again, just that awareness we need to have of what those challenges are and concerns are within individual markets that are top on our, our recruitment priority list. So that covers about what we have for you today in terms of content for the Roundup. And we appreciate all of you being uh, faithful watchers, either live or on repeat. Uh, those of you who subscribe to the audio-only podcast version of the Roundup, thank you for uh, putting us close to 2,500 uh, downloads. I'm uh, very excited about uh, those that have been subscribing to the, to the podcast version as well. So thanks for making uh, SMIE Consulting an important part of your international edification this week. And uh, just a quick heads up, I'll be on campus uh, at UNLV next week. So I'll be uh, recording hopefully uh, a live shot there of what's going on on campus uh, and what we're doing uh, on the international uh, education planning uh, stage uh, for, our, for our next year and how we're looking to grow our team. And that's a really exciting time at uh, UNLV for international education. So we'll be live next week. The following week, we'll be live from London. Uh, we'll be attending the BMI Global 
uh, scholarship summit that's happening. We're sponsoring scholarship organizations from all over the world. We'll be coming to London, and I'll be uh, meeting with a number of them, 24 or 5 or 6 of them, over a two-day period uh, to talk about uh, how we can be a destination for some of their scholarship students. So important times. Uh, the next two remotes will be our midweek roundups will be virtual for our from uh, on location in uh, on campus in UNLV and from the BMI Global Scholarship Summit uh, in London. So until next time, we wish you the very best and look forward to chatting with you again soon. Cheers.